So let me introduce our panelists. Uh, we'll start with nearest to me, Dan Morin, Senior Associate Editor at Macworld, who's written a lot about the iPad. Next to him is Ted Landau, Mac Observer, Macworld writer, and founder of MacFixit. Next to him is Ryan Block. You know him from Engadget. He is now the, uh, what, what's your title at, at Gadget.com? Co-founder. Co-founder. There you go. That's a good one. I like that one. And on the end, um, beloved technology pundit from the uh, Chicago Sun-Times and many other locations, including Macworld and Macworld UK, Andy Anatko. So, um, with the exception of Ted, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute because uh, that, that's kind of interesting too, all of us did get a chance to go to the event and have spent some close personal time with an iPad, at least 20 minutes, maybe a half an hour, um, which may not sound all that impressive, but we're probably among a couple hundred people uh, outside of Apple who've handled the device in the past. And I, I, it was a couple weeks ago. I want to start with asking you about your first impressions when you got your hands on it, not when it was sort of revealed by Steve Jobs under that little velvet drape that he had, but when we got our hands on it in the, in the hands-on area afterward. What were your first impressions? Dan, let's start with you. It's surprising, really, when you pick it up, just how natural it feels. And I say that because, you know, obviously Apple sold over 75 million phones and iPod Touches, so everyone's really familiar with the, the basic, uh, you know, the way that the touch interface works. But there's still something about the size, about the shape, that when you pick it up feels very natural and intuitive. In the same way that, I mean, you don't sit around going, uh, wow, this is, you pick up a book and think, how, how do I use this? <laughs> like, what is this? What does it work? How does it work? Um, it's very natural. It's very easy to pick things up. And it seems like it, it, it makes sense just off the top, right off the top. It makes sense to have the larger screen to be able to flip around and interact with things without that level of abstraction that you get from a, from a keyboard and a mouse, just to touch a link and, and go there. Um, and it's, it's kind of easy to see from there where this whole thing might be going. It certainly helps that we're familiar with this interface from the iPhone. And if, if this was the first time we'd seen that interface, the reaction might have been a little different. Ryan, what did you think when you got your hands on it for the first time? Uh, you know, it, it really felt like the device itself was just, you know, everything served the screen. So everything served the software experience. And it was really nice to just be able to, you know, especially as a browser, uh, to just be able to go into the web and see nothing but the content. And, you know, a lot of people are kind of uh, chanting this mantra, content, not Chrome. And, and that was really, I think, the kind of defining experience. But um, and, and it was also slightly less foamy than this one, too. <laughs> That's true. But, um, this one's very light, though. Yeah, I know. It was actually a little bit heavier. So, it felt, it, it, I don't know, it has this, it, it's really well balanced. It feels really well constructed. I thought it felt a little bit heavier than maybe it should. Um, but it's, you know, it's not so heavy that you wouldn't want to take it with you. Uh, overall, I mean, it was it was really nice, but I mean, I've, I've got a lot of a lot of complaints, and I'm, I'm sure we're going to get to that. Sure, sure. Um, one thing that you mentioned about feeling it in your hand, I, I wanted to mention um, the screen is four by three, so it's like a traditional TV set, and not sixteen by nine like a modern HD TV. And I know there's been some criticism of that. One of the demo movies on the iPad at the event was Star Trek, which is not even in sixteen by nine; it's in an even wider screen format. Yeah. And when you play it back, you have the choice to sort of chop it into just the middle third of the screen or view it with huge bars at the top and bottom. But I was trying to think about the balance of it in my hand 
um, if it was a 16 by 9 device, and it would have been so much longer at the top that I wonder if it would have been even more uncomfortable to hold. It would be weighing me down. Do you, what do yeah, you think? I mean, you, you, can't, you can't have both, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's got to be one or the other. It's either going to be really wide or it's going to be you know, slightly more traditional form factor uh, in, in the 3 by 4 I, I actually kind of prefer it. As, as it is like this. I, I don't think it should have been significantly wider and thinner. I think that it would have really kind of, like you just mentioned, it would have messed up with the balance, I think, of the overall device. But, I mean, there's, it, that, that, I think, is one particular aspect that kind of worked, worked its way through a lot of my, my niggles with it is that there's just a lot of empty space, unused space right now, that I think that could have you know, maybe been put to use. Andy, what do you think? What were your first thoughts? Uh, the very first impression was just the supremely high quality of the build uh, of this device itself. Uh, I get a lot of netbooks through my office. I get a lot of six, seven, eight hundred dollar Windows Seven notebooks through my office. Rarely have I seen anything that, when you feel it in your hand, you feel as though you have bought a premium product. It's solid. There's no rattling. There's everything fits together. There are no gaps. There are no leaks anywhere. It really does disappear in your hand. You just notice that you're just carrying this very, very cool piece of aluminum. Uh, and the device itself, more than anything else, just disappears within the first five seconds that you use it. I think that it's absolutely natural that there's been so much negativity about it, because if you see it in a streamed video, it's not very, very impressive. But 15 seconds later, the experience of interacting directly with a piece of software, not through an operating system and not even through a user interface, but you feel as though you're interacting directly with this mail client, directly with this web browser, it really is a transformative experience. I, I really cannot wait to get my hands on, well, I'm getting my hands on one right now, but uh, <laughs> it's not exactly interactive, is it? Yeah, we were saying behind the screens, this, I was led to believe it was an LCD screen, but this is more like, it's not even e-ink, it's just ink. Well, it, 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 is, it is backlit, you see? Yeah, that's right. And it doesn't auto-rotate. It's terrible. Yeah. Um, these, these are, thank goodness they're not selling these for $4.99. Um, how, how much do you want to bet we could get $4.99 for one of these right now? Hmm. Just, just for, for, anybody, for anybody who wants to like, try to make like, link bait posts to your blogs, just borrow the, we'll charge you $50 to borrow this for half an hour. We'll let one of you take like, a grainy camera phone photo of somebody in the corner somewhere and using it. And you will get a million links in about 10 seconds. And just take it to the Apple store down the block and ask them to activate it when you're done. So. <laughs> I, just, I, just, I just paid $5,000 for this from some guy in China on eBay. He said, just take it to any Apple store and they'll tell me what to do with it. Yeah, my dock connector isn't present. Can you fix that for me? Um, the bezel, actually, is one of the things that came up with the people who were sort of watching it on the, on the video stream or seeing the photos on Apple.com. And it, a lot of people said, wow, that's a really... That's a big bezel. That, why, why is that there? And when you get your hands yeah. on it, you start to realize humans have evolved with opposable thumbs right. that are used to hold devices such as this. And really, without it, you're getting your, your, your thumbs all over the screen and doing things to, to, you know, modifying what's going on in the interface that you wouldn't want to do. So it's actually kind of a, a smart approach to have a bezel like that. Yeah. I don't know. Yes and no. I mean, okay. I, 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 I definitely see that. I agree. But at the same time, um, I mean, we've all used iPhones and iPods, uh, iPod touches. And, uh, you know, you, there is no bezel on that. And your thumb does get sometimes in the way a little bit. And it doesn't really affect user interface. I mean, the multi-touch that Apple has implemented yeah, is smart enough in most cases to kind of know that, oh, yeah, that's just kind of a, you know, that's a thumb that's there. And it you know, 
ignore it. And well, I, don't worry I can't, about it. I can't quite cup this one in my hand like I do with the yeah, iPhone. Yeah, I mean, this, no, this, this weighs a lot less in your hand. I can hold this up without even putting any fingers on it. With this one, I really need to keep a grip up on it. It's not, it's not too heavy to read as a book, but it is definitely heavy enough that you're going to want to have a good grip on it. I think that one of the first aftermarket accessories is going to be go down to Home Depot or Lowe's, get some of that 3M like gripper tape that you put on, on stair treads. <laughs> to just help you not drop it uh, in the tub and other unnecessary places. I, th I think they really... Will, will Jeff Bezos read his iPad in a plastic bag? I, think I mean, I think they the wanted questions. to avoid the same problem that the, the Kindle had in that first version where there was that huge button to Switcher turn buttons, your page, yeah. and there's no place to put your thumb without accidentally turning the page. Um, and as such, it, it does seem like it's really comfort, and I feel like you don't notice the bezel as much once you've used it, but yeah, exactly. it, it is... We're so accustomed to this edge-of-the-screen thing on the, on the iPhone now that it seems like wasted space, but at the same time, I think once you start using it, it just kind of fades into the background in the same way that maybe you don't really notice the bezel on your MacBook monitor anymore either. Now, I want to I want to bring in Ted, who we haven't heard from yet, other than his funny joke that everybody laughed at, by the way, so it points to you. Um, <laughs> Uh, you weren't at the event. Uh, one of the reasons I invited you on the stage right now, other than your general distinguished knowledge of all things technology, of course, is um, Dan wrote a piece on Macworld.com about this concept that I want to talk about, that this is a new paradigm for computing, that this is Apple saying, you know, we moved the ball forward in 1984 when we replaced all the command line interfaces with this keyboard and mouse graphical interface that has taken over the world. Um, but we need to advance the ball some more. We need to replace that with something new that's a uh, touchscreen and more direct interaction, which is great. But one of the one of the things that we saw demoed was iWork, and iWork is something you see on your Mac, and now it's going to be on this device. That's an interesting um, question about: Is this a computer? or not, is this a replacement for your laptop or not? Um, but I wanted to start with Ted, because I know you had some thoughts about th the fact that this is still using the closed uh, app store environment rather than the kind of open app environment of the Mac. Would you like to talk about that a little bit? Sure. And first, let, let me say on, on the record that I think the iPod is going to be a tremendous success. I'm in line to get one as well as everybody else. I'm sure I'll enjoy using it for all the reasons that you've already discussed. There's no doubt about that in my mind. What I was talking about in that article was my feeling that, that as the iPhone, as the iPad is based on the iPhone OS, and I expect, as you're saying, that the iPad will have even wider range of uses, more like a computer than the iPhone, it becomes a question to me how good an idea is to have the restrictions, the closed nature of the uh, iPhone OS on the, on, on the iPad. And there were three issues that, that particularly concerned me. One is, uh, in terms of the App Store, the license agreement that developers have to uh, agree to in order to, to put an app out, I think, has restrictions that have no business being there. And I can give examples later on if you want to talk about it. Um, also, there are, there are ways in which Apple rejects things from the App Store that barely, if at all, seem to be related to the license agreement uh, and seem arbitrary. And I have a personal example of that that we could talk about that just happened to me in the last couple of days. And the third thing is that users are restricted from getting anything on their iPhone um, that isn't in the App Store, uh, basically, unless you resort to what people commonly refer to as jailbreaking. Uh, and all those things concern me as they would apply to the iPad. And I was thinking about how can I, I... I've talked about this, and people have said various criticisms of what I said, which I can also talk about. And I try to think, how can I get this across uh, in a way that, I, that, that maybe is a little bit more colorful? And something happened to me recently that, if, if I can just, just indulge me for a minute with a little incident that, that I thought you know, had some bearing on it. And, I live in a two-story house and has a thermostat on the main floor. 
And as a result, our lower floor sometimes doesn't get as warm as we would like it, especially this time of year. And, uh, and so one time recently, it was really cold down there. We, we, and I'm thinking, what to do? We don't have a space heater or anything like that. So I'm saying, okay, over the holidays, we got a Cuisinart toaster oven. And I said, all right, well, maybe we can rig up the toaster oven to serve as a space heater. And, <laughs> and uh, so I take, it, I take it downstairs, and it, it doesn't go where I want it to go, and so I'm going to need an extension cord. And so I get an extension cord, and I rig the whole thing up, and it doesn't work. And so I'm saying, okay, I'm going to call Cuisinart Tech Support and see what's going on, because I knew the thing worked. And so I call up, and the first thing they ask me is, am I using an extension cord? And, of course, I was. So I said, yeah. So I said, well, would you look at the end of the extension cord? And I look at the end of the extension cord. Yeah, now what? It says, does it have a Made for Cuisinart sticker on it? And I said, no. No, I said, well, that's your problem. You have, we only, only extension cords that are designed to work with the Cuisinart toaster oven can be used. I'm skeptical, but I said, okay, where do I get one of those? I have to go to Home Depot. They have one that costs twice as much as the other extension cord. But I'm back, and it's working. I mean, the extension cord is clearly working, and I try it, but no, the toaster oven still doesn't go on. So I'm back on <laughs> Cuisinart Tech Support again, and uh, now we, they're going through a whole Q&A of am I doing this, am I doing that? And finally, we get to the crux of the matter. I'm forced to admit that I'm trying to use the toaster oven as a space heater. <laughs> and... And they said, no, no, you're not authorized to do that. I said, what do you mean I'm not authorized to do that? It's just in the license agreement that you implicitly signed when you bought the toaster oven, and it specifically prohibits using the toaster oven as a space heater. It's in Clause AB. In fact, you're prohibited from even trying if you try. It's just against the rules if you try. They even had a term for it. They called it jail baking. And... <laughs> And they said, I wasn't they said, I wasn't allowed to do that. And I said, well, what do you care? You know, I mean, I, I, it's my toaster oven. I, if I want to do it, you're not living in my house. And no, no, it's going to degrade the, the experience of using the, the toaster oven. The, um, yeah, the, the flames around your house yeah, are going to degrade and, the experience and, of it. And, and they just didn't like it. So I said, okay, fine, I'm not going to do that. I gave up on the whole thing, and I'm ready to hang up on them. I'm pretty peeved at this point. And they said, oh, by the way, one more thing. What, what? Yeah, uh, those Pop-Tarts that are in your pantry, they're not going to work in your toaster oven. And I said, what's with that? I said, you know, bread, your bagels, your English muffins, yeah, those will work fine. I knew that because I'd already done that. But uh, the Pop-Tarts aren't going to work because you didn't buy them directly from us through our cuisine art store. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I have to buy this stuff directly from you or I can't use it? Yeah, that's the way it goes. Okay, I'll order six boxes of Pop-Tarts. No. I couldn't do that either because they rejected Pop-Tarts from the App Store. And so, uh, I, so there's no way I can get Pop-Tarts to work in my toaster oven. That's correct. And I, just, I slammed down the phone, and I called the guy that told me to get this damn toaster oven to begin with and told him what was going on. He was not the least sympathetic. He was like a Cuisinart fanboy. There's nothing that, 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 that you can do that, that, that will... And he's going, you know, actually, there was a fire risk to using it as a space heater. They were just looking out for you. And as far as the Pop-Tarts are concerned, they're not really very healthy for you anyway. Uh, and so I, I'm done with him, and I'm saying, that's it. I'm getting rid of this damn thing. I'm ready to throw it out. And then I look at it, and I say, you know, it really looks kind of slick. And it works really nice, and it's the best toast I've ever had. And so I decided to keep it. And, and I don't know, that made me think of the iPhone for some reason. I'm not sure. <laughs> if, if you're just joining us, um, the topic today is Hot Pockets. And what they mean 
for your health. I, I tell you this, I know what I'm getting Ted for Christmas next year. <laughs> space heater. <laughs> a space heater. Uh, I guess the, the larger question is, does the... Does the iPad as a computer, more of a computer than the iPhone maybe, uh, exacerbate the issues involving um, the App Store, or are they the same issues that we see on the iPhone and it's really not very different? I think it's, I think it's the ultimate proof of concept that if this concept of, of having one gatehouse for all the software and all the development on a device works, it will work spectacularly well on this device. If it doesn't work, then we have to start to, it will really show the weaknesses in the entire concept. I'm very, very, um, one of the things I'm looking forward to most of all about the iPad is the idea of having a, com having a computer that potentially will always work and will potentially ne almost never needs to be hard reset and almost potentially never makes me feel very, very happy. I live alone in my house. I don't have, like, roommates in here. And if I want to spend 10 minutes yelling at something that should be working but isn't, I can do so. Uh, I really think that the win from the App Store concept is that you get a more stable machine at the expense of some freedom that maybe you weren't going to exercise anyway. A Apple is the ultimate expression of Dr. Doom uh, as a CEO. You know, he's a tyrant. He restricts what you can do, but he gives you everything you possibly want. All he demands is absolute obedience, and you'll be fine. <laughs> if you're just joining us, by the way, the topic today is the Fantastic Four and their many enemies. Ryan, what do you think? I, I, you know, I've, I've yet to see a, a really good example of why we shouldn't have the freedom, uh, and, and specifically the implementation of third-party applications that WebOS and that Android has. And that's, you know, you have, to, you have to really dig for it. It's like six menus deep, and then there's a big disclaimer that says, hey, when you turn on the unauthorized third-party apps mode, uh, you know, you kind of take your device into your own hands. But, uh, you know... Knowing that and, and installing things that are not necessarily approved by Apple or, in, in, you know, in other cases by Palm or by Google, I mean, what's, what's the problem? I mean, it is, you know, it is my toaster oven. Well, I, I think um, I was talking to somebody yesterday about the idea of having um, an app store on the Mac. And I mentioned that to them, and they're like, oh, geez, imagine that. What would, how terrible would that be? I said, no, imagine that you still have Mac software as you do today, but you also have the App Store. It would actually be great for Mac software developers in that there would be this incredible storefront for their software if they got in that regular users would find, and they might never otherwise find their software. Um, but that would be the other approach. It would be you're free to do whatever you want, but we've got a preferred way that most people are probably going to use, and if you want to go outside that, then good luck to you. You're, you are taking the, the, the device into your own yeah, and, hands. And the App Store is a fantastic solution. I mean, it is, it is literally a revolution in the way that software is distributed to end users. And I think anybody who develops with it knows that. Well, you know, you can boo App Store all you want, but, I mean, it, the fact is it has actually created a lot of exposure. You get a direct channel to end users and their devices. But the problem is, of course, that Apple is not budging at all on their, on their philosophy of how this thing should work. And there really isn't a reason why they shouldn't just, you know, allow you to kind of set the override switch and let you kind of do your thing with your device. I mean, far be it for me to be the one who ends up defending the App Store because <laughs> I, I think that obviously my track record on that has been, I think you're right that there is, there are definitely problems with the single gatekeeper approach. At the same time, it, it kind of flows with Apple's philosophy of what they've been trying to do for so long to create a simpler device that I think the, the point of it is not that... Uh, tinkerers can't use it, but that you don't need to be a tinkerer in order to use it. And I understand that, you know, there is definitely a possibility for being able to install apps on your own 
and, and futz around with it as much as you want. And I think, frankly, that they might do that at some point, but that in these early stages, they're really heavily invested in making sure that the experience is so smooth. And for them, that really means controlling every part of the process. And that is something that, you know, obviously a lot of us don't really agree with. But from a product standpoint, I mean, at the end of the day, it is their product, even if we are buying it. I mean, and you can, you can, you know, do what you want with it if you are willing to go down the jailbreak road. Um, and people will always find a way of, of opening that up to, to other people's, uh, to third-party applications, even those that aren't approved by Apple. It is a lot harder than it needs to be. I agree. And I, you know, I wish there was an option. But at the same time, you can kind of understand that they're, they're telling this as a consumer electronics product rather than a computer in some ways, even if it is somewhat strangely positioned in between the two. Can we, yeah. but uh, but I, I, I absolutely agree with your observation. I mean, if, if you have a system-level switch that simply says, Permit, signed, uh, permit unsigned applications versus do not permit unsigned applications. It even solves the problem of uh, uh, support. On, if people take this thing into the genius bar, they say, well, here's your problem. This switch should be set to here. Right. This is also labeled the solve all problems that cause, that, that cause problems along the iPhone switch. Now, I want to I wanna back up from the... I don't want to go too far down the App Store path just because the iPhone... This is really about the iPad, and the iPhone has a lot of these same issues, even though they share this issue in common. Um, but if we can back up a little bit to the just the concept that this is a computer, much more obviously a computer than the iPhone. iPhone's also a computer. But this is obviously doing some of the tasks, like iWork, that we have seen on our computers before. It, is it right to say that Apple is taking... another crack at reinventing what computers are for and how people use them and more than that is is this the right approach and is it going to work? Yeah, I, I think that what Apple does best of all is the ability to get down to the real questions. When they ask, what is a computer, they don't say, well, it has a screen, it has a keyboard, it has a mouse, it has a file system, it has ports. They answer that question in terms of what what problems does a computer solve? And as we continue to have a different relationship, as our relationship with technology continues to evolve, we continue to have different answers to that as we go. Uh, with the iPad, uh, I, I was when I was uh, fooling around with it for those 30 minutes to you know, 45 minutes, it was, I was evaluating from the point of view of someone who's going to have to write a, can we say buttload here? A buttload <laughs> of, uh, of coverage on it in the next couple of days. But I was also evaluating in terms of a guy who wants to have a device that does it all. And there were just two checkboxes for me as a consumer. Number one was I occasionally need to write a thousand words wherever I am on any subject. I need to have a real keyboard. Well, what do you know? They gave us two different solutions for real keyboards. Okay, one checkoff gone. The second one is I need to be able to get files in and on and off of this thing. And this was my biggest worry about it, given what an absolute bear it is to deal with your desktop applications on an iPhone. And I find out over the next 24 hours, they've actually come up with a really good solution that lets me have the same sort of, the same sort of interactivity I want to have between my desktop and this device as I would have if I had an open file system, only in a way that makes more sense for this kind of device. So I really think that this is going to be as transforming a, uh, a product as the original Mac was. I don't think it's, it's, an, it's the next iPhone. I think it's the next, next Macintosh. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think uh, the, the, I, the iPad today clearly can do everything that a MacBook can do. It's not going to replace your laptop. Uh, the, the release of the, of the iWork software, though, I think was the opening salvo that Apple is saying, yeah, this is a direction we can go in. 
you can add a keyboard, you can start using this as a productivity machine. It isn't going to happen tomorrow, but you know, look at what the iPhone can do today that it couldn't do when Steve gave his keynote in 2007. I mean, even Steve, who was trying to promote the uh, iPhone as the you know, best thing since sliced bread, couldn't have imagined all the things that we're doing with the iPhone today. So two, three years from now, 2012, 2013, I think it's not only conceivable, but I think it's likely that most people, not everybody, just like not everybody buys a laptop, there's still people that buy a Mac Pro, there's still people that use a, a, a Mac server, uh, Xserve, but, but, but I think the majority of people who are happy with a laptop today will be happy with an iPad in, in three or four years. Wow, majority in three or four years, I, that's, that's a pretty bold statement. I, I don't know whether Apple's one of the criticisms of this product is very specific to the product itself, and that I think there is a duality there of like this particular product versus what it could be in a few years, whether it's three or four years or five or six years or whatever. I, I, Dan? I think it really reflects, though, how pervasive technology has become in our lives. We're all used to carrying our phones around now, um, and you know, we have a laptop or we have a computer. For me, there's an interesting question in terms of sort of ergonomics. We've all kind of adapted to computers because, because of the way they are. You, you make sure that your chair is set at the right height, you sit in the right angle, you want your monitor adjusted so that you don't have to crane your neck. Whereas when you're using a device like a phone, the iPhone or the iPad, um, it's, it adapts to how you want to use it. Um, in the same way that you might curl up uh, in your couch with a book. Um, it's not worrying about, oh, is this in a good position where I'll be, I have enough light, where I can see it, I'm comfortable, I'm not going to hurt my back. But I mean, come on, I, I sit like this and read a book all the time. <laughs> and it's just, it's nice to have something that doesn't feel like you have to make adjustments in the way that you want to use it, but rather that it's always available for you no matter what you're doing, like a magazine, like a book, something you just pick up and use. That, that's going to be an interesting thing to test out in real life, though. I thought it was significant that any, any time there's an Apple keynote, you know that you're watching a magic act, and that if, a, that if a box is exactly a certain height, that's not random. They pick that height because that's the minimum distance that whoever's going to, be, going to appear can scrunch down in. And so you start to look at, well, is there a reason why they chose those kind of chairs that you sort of sink into that you, so that you naturally have... So when Steve was using this thing, he sort of naturally had a place to rest his hand. He had a natural place to, to, uh, to do it so that instead of like being on a regular like sort of a folding chair where he's like like this, and then at the end of the day where it's like, I'm holding this one pound thing for 20 minutes, bring on, please bring on the electronic arts guy, I really can't keep, keep this thing steady for another minute longer. It's going to be different to see what it's like to work with this when you're enjoying your lunchtime burrito, what it's like to work with this when you're in a conference room and trying to do something discreetly. Uh, I mean, it, there, is, there, is, there are features to a notebook. One of them is that you get, you get the, uh, the battleship effect where no one can see what's going on on your screen unless you're wearing eyeglasses and the, you don't know how big these pictures you're watching are reflecting in your lenses. Uh, there's a lot of questions that are just very simple and very basic about the ergonomics that we're not going to figure out until... 200,000 people start using it day to day to day. I thought it was really strange that although Apple did have this very specific um, comfy chair so that Steve Jobs could sit there and just do this and he was very comfortable, that when we went to the testing area to try these things out, there were these large raised platforms yeah. where iPads were laying on the platforms with Apple. Every, every iPad had an Apple employee who was basically told, if you let this thing out of your sight, we're not just going to fire you. you your, your family will wonder where you went. You'll be gone. Um, and, and up here, I mean, you, I tried to type, but it was too high up. You know, they were typing in the lap. There is this question of what, what uses for this device are going to work with our bodies and what aren't, because you're removing that kind of layer 
of abstraction that, that we have now. And, and you know, these hands and fingers are what we were all born with, and that's what we've got yeah. to use this device. This, the second problem is that, now this isn't a glossy, glossy front, but the iPad will have a glossy front. Again, not so much of a problem when you have a notebook, because you, adjust, you sit down, you adjust it so it's not glaring, and then that screen doesn't move. What happens when you're sort of doing this, that, and the other over the course of a half an hour? In some ways, I think it's easier, though, because, I mean, I, I go out and I'll sit in a cafe and open my laptop, and I can never find okay. an angle where the light's not looking at it. Whereas if I'm carrying something around, you know, like the phone or whatever, it's much more, well, I can just move over here. You know, I can't have my laptop over here if there's a table right here. Yeah. So th th there's a lot of interesting possibilities. Uh, I, I, you, know, you also don't have to be holding your laptop at all times mm -hmm. either. And that's, that's actually one of my biggest complaints with it is if you want to do two-handed, you either have to be sitting in a chair very similar to this, or you have to have a table that you can kind of look down on, and, and that's actually kind of uncomfortable too because your neck is looking directly down. I mean, yeah, it's, there's, there's something to not having to hold the device that you're interacting with that, yeah, it's not as intimate of an experience, but it does help you actually really get engaged with it and be a little bit more productive. I do wonder, I, I, I wonder if there is a whole class of accessories. Well, it's an Apple product. There will be so many accessories, you will not know what to do with them all. But the idea of a cradle sort of thing where you can, you can pop it down on your table and have it be at an angle where you can actually well, see it. I was going to say maybe a lot of those. That, that I view the, that there are like going to be two different modes for the iPod, iPad, sorry. One will be uh, where it's primarily a consumption device. And in that sense, it's really portable. You know, it's like holding a folded newspaper or a big paperback book. You'll just carry it wherever you go. Uh, sit down at a coffee shop and you'll browse web pages or whatever. And I think it'll be much more convenient for doing that than a laptop has ever been for that sort of function. Okay. On the other hand, there may be times when you want to get more serious work done with it, and that's when you're going to want to pull out a portable keyboard, set it up on a stand, and it'll be uh, a different environment. And I think you'll be able to switch back and forth as needed between those two environments. Now, when this product was, well, I was going to say announced, when this product was rumored for many, many months beforehand, Years. One, one of the, well, yes, this particular product Decades. months. Yeah. It, yes. When Nostradamus predicted that yeah. the <laughs> iPad would be released, one of the things he predicted was that it would also save the, the um, industry of dead trees, I believe is what Nostradamus <laughs> said, which we've come to believe is the publishing industry. Now, the, the iPad ships with uh, a product, or actually there will be a product, it doesn't ship with it, you will download it, called iBooks, which is a book reader. And at the event, the New York Times demonstrated a New York Times app. So I'm interested in what you guys think about what the iPad means for eBooks and what it means for newspapers and, and magazines. I, as someone, um, and some, uh, as someone who grew up as the child of two librarians, um, I have a long history with with books and with reading. And I think here's where I, you know I come down with with Ted's sort of point about the the applications is that. Uh, I get very worried about how ebooks work on a device like this because for me, one of the joys of getting books is getting books in the library, uh, sharing books with friends, borrowing books, lending books. And it seems like, like the early days of the music industry, that the, the publishers are really committed right now to locking these things down so that if I want to lend Andy this new book that I read, that I have to give him my iPad or I have to oh. tell him to go buy it. I mean, if I had to buy every book that I read, and I read a fair amount of books, I you know, I would spend so much more. So either I have to read a lot less or I have to, you know, buy all of them or what have you. And so I, I think it's, it's a great idea for convenience. I mean, the idea of having so many books in this little portable device is extremely attractive um, because, you know, you go on a plane or whatever, you breeze through whatever paperback you bought. Nice to have a second book there. But at the same time, losing that freedom aspect to just do with it what I want um, and sharing it with people is, is worrisome to me. 
Well, that, that's interesting. I mean, it's a computer, so it can do whatever developers want to do and whatever the copyright owners want it to do. Uh, to your issue of lending things out, already uh, one of the greatest news about the about iBook was knowing that EPUB is going to be the basic format they're going to use, which is remarkably flexible. Uh, there are public libraries that, with the EPUB, with the Adobe Digital Editions DRM, which is pretty much the standard uh, for publishing things with DRM uh, in the ebook space, it is actually possible to, for a uh, publisher to give a library 20 licenses to an ebook, and they're configured so that they can actually lend out these digital books right. so that the license automatically expires and reverts back to the library in seven days' time. So this really could be, it could, it could make it even easier to, uh, it, it could increase the power and the relevance of libraries by saying, turn the, your local public library, not the whole library system, but your local public library into a version of Amazon.com where you say, oh look, there's a license available for, the, for this, Tom, this Ludlum thriller. I'm going to basically sign that out without having to go anywhere. And of course people said, you know, well, uh, I talked to a couple people about this and they said, well, there's nothing to stop a library in theory from developing an application right. that lets you check See, out books online. Right, I mean, sure. at the at the same time, of course, it'd be nice if libraries had the money to develop applications like that, and so often they are cash-strapped. Um, but there are certainly possibilities. But it's the you know the, the music industry has certainly fought a battle for DRM that they ended up losing, and I think it didn't. The question is, did that change that whole industry? Probably. I mean, are the publishers going to well, go through the same thing? The thing, the thing is, DRM is going to be absolutely critical to the survival of newspapers and magazines. Uh, the web was an experiment that absolutely failed and for, for newspapers and magazines. Not because that they've stopped doing good journalism or doing really great feature articles, but because it sort of put the work, the really expensively produced work of newspapers and magazines down on the same level of, of, uh, of perception as anybody who has access to WordPress. And there's a, really, there's a lot of great journalism and great writing being done by your random person with WordPress, but it's a totally different thing. What it did was it trained the average consumer that anything you get through a web browser is supposed to be free. If they charge you a dollar a month for it, that's not something they're supposed to be able to do because anything you get through the web is free. What the Amazon, what Amazon's Kindle did was change that a little bit by starting to teach people that expensively produced commercial content done by professionals is something that you download and pay money for. So by shifting their model from we publish things on the web to we publish things as ebooks that have to be asked for, requested, subscribed to, and or downloaded, this is how they can start actually getting money for all the journalists and all the photographers and all the art people that they actually have to pay. Except that the books aspect here is books. There's no magazine solution. There's no news solution. That's actually what, what I found the most shocking about this. There, there's no periodicals for you know, for the iPad. There's no i i i magazines, right? And that's I think what could have been possibly the most revolutionary aspect about this device is if Apple had created either a standard or used EPUB or or, or modified it or done something in order to be able to so I could get the subscription of my choice so I could get you know the New Yorker on my on my iPad instead of you know having to get that paper subscription because there is a there's a rift you know there there's there's a really difficult challenge that the publishing industry faces both news and magazines in adapting to these kinds of devices and not everybody like New York Times for example is going to be able to create their app that is as rich and as feature filled as as the New York Times reader is well, well I, again I think it's Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to build an app like the New York Times app. Right. And although you get the flexibility of being able to develop anything you want, the, the downside is that you have to make that investment. So I think it's a good point. And the other point is the 
the storefront aspect of it, which is if there's an iBookstore or an iMagazine store, yes, you may be constrained by what Apple has built into their app, but everybody knows that it's there. I have no doubt that applications like Zinio are going to be on the iPad where you can get a digital replica of a, of a magazine, but people have to know to go and do it, or the, the magazine or the newspaper is going to have to build their own app. And, and it, it becomes this kind of fractured space, um, a little bit like book reading on the iPhone is now, where there are sort of 15 different ways to get a book on the iPhone. Yeah, you know, I didn't feel like that there was this gaping hole where, where books were on, on iDevices. I mean, you can get that. There's the Kindle Reader, and there's a lot of other devices you can get ebooks on. But there is a really, you know, as far as periodicals go, there's nothing. And, and that is something that Apple could have really changed the game on. Uh, and hopefully they will in the future, but I mean, there's there's nothing for that now. I, think, I, want, I, think I want to get back to the business about books for a second. I think another really um, positive way in which the iPad is going to work is for textbooks. Uh, coming from my college professor days and my former life, uh, when when students are buying college textbooks, they're they're spending as much as several hundred to a thousand dollars a semester because the books are so expensive now, and they're these huge lugging around books that they're never going to take the class on a regular basis. Imagine being able, at some fraction of the cost, which I'm hoping the publishers would accomplish, at some fraction of the cost, being able to get an entire semester's worth of books onto your iPad, uh, and uh, and then take your iPad to class, and whatever book you need is going to be there. I I think textbook publishers are going to really look at this uh, as, as a boon. And, and another thing in that regard is that textbook publishers are really concerned about um, the selling used copies uh, as a way of eating into their market. And I'm not exactly sure that this will work out well because there's always the issue of pirating copies of the ebook. But I think, I think the, the potentially, if it's handled right, the iPad could be a solution to the publishers having issues where they're losing market share because people keep reselling the old textbook. Well, that's a case where you might actually make a really fair trade, which mm -hmm. is by dramatically lowering the price of the textbook mm -hmm. book in exchange for it being a single use or a rental for the mm -hmm. length of a semester. Mm -hmm. um, but I would always ask that question, that if they're so used to having a book for $100, are they really going to be willing to take it down to a price that's more reasonable? Yeah, well, we'll see how the market will bear. <laughs> then, I mean, this, the, the music makers, the movie makers are kicking, you know, they had to drag them kicking and screaming into, into the Internet age, and maybe the book publishers will be the same way, but I hope not. I, I, I think there's, there's, iBook as an application is one of the most significant and quiet pieces of news out of that entire announcement. I think it's incredibly significant that that's been from the get-go in every piece of official uh, promotional literature from Apple said that this is an application that you will be able to download. Uh, the application that we tried on that day was probably the least functional of every application that was out there. There was almost uh, I could do almost anything in pages. I could do almost anything in the in the browser. All these other applications I could really use. iBooks. There was that. At what point is this going to freeze up? At what point is this going to stutter and slow down? And all these other functionality was turned off. I think the reason why it's downloadable is for two reasons. Number one, it's just not going to be ready in time so that it will actually ship on every single device that's being manufactured. And secondly, I think Apple understands that this is an application that's going to have to evolve. It's going to be something that every time you tap a button for the App Store and say, please show me all apps that have been updated, it can show you a, rev a revision of iBooks that was released two days ago, as opposed to having to wait for an iPad release. Right. I because if it's on the phone, it basically gets pushed out as an OS release. But exactly. if it's an app you download, then it can auto-update. Right. Yeah, the, second, the second thing, though, is that I don't think that iBooks is going to be the most significant part of the delivery mechanism for anything that's periodical in nature uh, because 
all the newspapers and all the magazines and all the publishers that I've been talking to, and this goes even down to comic book publishers, are not focused so much as we're going to do everything in iBook, we're throwing all of our lot in iBook. They're throwing their lot behind tablet devices. So whenever I see them talk to me, anything that I can talk about publicly, they're talking about we're developing a solution that's based on WebKit. Uh, the, tech, the, the browser technology that's not only built into the iPad, but also the iPhone, and also every Android iPhone, and excuse me, Android phone, and every Android tablet, so that we will be aggressive when we uh, when we release our apps for the iPad. But it means that after we start to uh, start the money rolling in, then we can very easily take the same technology and put it into any other device. I do think that delivery via application is here to stay, for at least until Apple deliver something that's significantly better. Yeah, well, I, I think that's the problem. There's no MP3 for magazines, right? right? There's no EPUB but for which, magazines. Which is, which is more powerful, because you can design that magazine to be whatever you want. The people who design magazines, they are the most persnickety people you've ever seen. I've, I've had arguments where I'm like, yeah, you took the, there's a, this lead paragraph was actually really important, because it has, yeah, but the thing is, there's too much white space between the words. I don't care about white space between words. It was an important sentence. Yeah, but still, we want to do a drop. Okay, fine. But, but a lot of magazines don't have the... Uh, are not going to have the staff to be persnickety right. about all these different digital versions. And that's to Ryan's point that it's relatively easy for us to set up an XML feed from our website that feeds Kindle, which does have a magazine and newspaper um, API, basically a, a format that yes. you can write to. And on the, I, on the iPad right now, it seems like the story is build your own app, and that's your only real option. And that's a nice custom option, but it is very expensive, and some developers are not going to want to do it. Now, there may be a third party that comes up with their own magazine rack system well, yeah. and builds well, their own format, but it just may, there may be a lot of different ones then and some confusion about where do I go to get the right one. I, I myself am developing my own self-publishing ideas for iPhone and iPad. And what the, the deal that's being worked out is that uh, I'm co-authoring co an application that will essentially work as my printing press. And this is where that's a lot of investment of time and money to get this going. But the future idea is always going to be that once these presses have been built, I will give you 10% of everything that I make uh, from selling these books. I will get an application framework that I simply have to drag an, R an RTF file or an HTML file or a PDF file. They're already well integrated into publishing workflows, spitting out designs as HTML, PDF, or RTF. If it becomes a turnkey solution where I drag this onto this, click a button to initiate an automator action, Xcode fires up, builds it, puts it to the App Store, and I get an approval of the day later. That's something that a lot of small presses could very easily deal with, and they would say that, gee, 10% to handle Part of our operation is currently 38% of our production costs. That's a good deal for us. Well, it's a, it's a possibility. I, I, I see both of your points. I think Ryan's point is also good. We're guessing. Everybody was hoping that Apple would have something that would just come out of the box that says, hey, our magazine publishers, here you go. This is what you need to do. And it's not there. I think we see why when we look at the iBooks app, because you're right, it was definitely not ready. I did read one press report afterward that said it was like the best book reading app they'd ever seen. Uh, compared, and compared to the book reading apps on the iPhone, it was one of the worst I'd ever seen because it, it just wasn't done. Yeah. Not saying it's going to be bad when it ships, but it didn't hyphenate. It was all force justified. The font selection wasn't there. The, the search were, button didn't work. Yeah, yeah, there were lots of things. The bookstore was, in fact, the store was not even active. And the store you wasn't could only, You could read whatever text they had loaded on, but it was a handful in there. You couldn't look at the actual storefront. Right, so so it's a work in progress, and, and so for all of that hope that it builds up that, oh, they're going to save the publishing industry, it seems like Apple cares about reading in a way that they never said they did before, and that's a good thing. And if yeah. there's a Kindle app for the iPad, then all the people who've got Kindles and have been buying books on the Amazon Kindle store will be able to read those as well, which is another good option. And thank you for mentioning comic books, because everybody I've talked to who is a comic book guy um, is very excited about the iPad as well, because comics on the iPhone is... 
difficult because the screen is so small. There's a, a company called Panelfly that uh, we talked to the other day here at Macworld Expo, and they have a, a, a proof of concept already about what they uh, what they want to do on the on the iPad. And I think the other comic book app developers are working feverishly because they see this as a great opportunity for a medium like that, where the existing e-readers are all black and white and e-paper, e-paper and they they don't really work very well for these full color comics that are out there. Yeah, and I, th- I think that there's these two kinds of um, publishing modes that that we need to be looking at, and, and we haven't really talked about you know are you going to want to actually read on the iPad. I mean, comic books make a ton of sense, not only because it's, you know, generally short form and very quick to go through and it needs that vivid color and that, you know, that really crisp green can be taken advantage of, but I don't actually want to read a book on the iPad. All of the things that make the iPad screen so amazing, like the brightness and the vivid colors and the contrast are the things that actually make it painful to look at for long periods of time reading text. And I have a Kindle and I actually feel like when the iPad got announced, I, I felt like my, my Kindle was like a firm because it, it, it's actually much better to read on for long periods of time. So, there, you know, there, there's these kinds of two ways of reading things, and I think that books are still going to be best read in terms of electronically on, on e-ink-based devices. I agree with you. I think there's a place for something like the Kindle or a, maybe a cheaper, more simplified kind of book unitasker. Uh, I think there's a future for that, and, uh, even with the iPad in existence. Although I could read books on the iPad, and I like the fact that it lights itself instead of the Kindle, yeah. where I have to clip on a book yeah, light. I, I, if would, it's dark. I wouldn't be nearly as extreme as you were suggesting. I mean, I've read books on, on my iPhone, for that matter, and it's just not painful by any means. I mean, I agree that the Kindle interface is better, but I think you can clearly read a book on the iPhone or the iPad, and I think. Uh, uh, from a price perspective, I mean, when you look at the ten, it's, I think it's ten dollars less to get the the large Kindle than to get the cheapest iPad. And it's, it's to me, that's a hard sell to get a Kindle, even with the advantages that you're talking well, about. Because yeah. a large well, Kindle these, certainly these, is a bad. Yeah, well, yeah, 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 these, these prices are going to change. But I, I, think, I, mean, I think the big deal is always going to be Sony can give, can sell you a really good e-ink reader for less than two hundred bucks. The, the the standard price point for other e-ink readers is two hundred fifty dollars. I think that's where the money is going to be for uh, the the, the five hundred dollar price point is now radioactive if you're trying to do a yeah. Book reader or anything that is not really ambitious, but you can do very, very well. Particularly as all these publishers start to change their workflow, so that the end at the end they press a big green green button that spits out eight different editions for to take advantages of eight different devices without any extra work on their part. And I'm sure there will be a Kindle edition, there'll be an EPUB edition, there might even be a simple HTML edition. And I think there'll also be a cheaper iPad as well, just like there were cheaper iPods after the iPod first came out, just like the price of the iPhone dropped a couple of hundred dollars or more after the iPhone was out. I think that I don't think there's anything magical about five hundred dollars being the lowest price that we're going to see an iPad device. Yeah, be but the Kindle, Kindle too. Yeah, and, and, and you could, I could see a day where the Kindle is free. Absolutely, because, I mean, that's the future of Amazon's business model, right? I mean, there, there's a reason why they actually took the time and spent tens of millions of dollars to develop a piece of consumer electronics. I mean, they see that as the future. They need to be both the distributor and the seller. So uh, the Kindle for them is not, I don't think it's going away, and I don't think the iPad killed it. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, if you are looking for a device that does everything, you're not going to be looking at the Kindle, right? If you want to read books, then that's your device. And of course, but if you want to do a lot of things, mm-hmm. then the iPad is, you know, much better off. They can totally, you know, co- coexist as Apple has shown with the uh, the iPhone and the original iPod, like the iPod Nano, for example. It's still a single-player device. I mean, yes, you can watch videos on it, but it's not really designed for that. It's a great music listening device. Mm-hmm. But if you want to do internet, you want to read your email, obviously you're going to be looking at a phone. And I don't think that the iPad's going to kill the Kindle any more yeah. than the Kindle has killed the book. Well, I, mean, we, I still we, like reading on an actual book. Yeah. So, I mean, I think all three of those things can, can easily coexist. Well, that's, that's part of the genius of using the same basic operating system because we already have an iPad Nano. It's this thing right here. 
you know, if you want a more portable version that runs the same, most of the same applications that can do a lot of the same media, you have a $99 solution, or if you want to buy it in the form of an iPod, iPod Touch, you have a $199 solution. So it, a, lot of, a lot of people are going to have to be locked in a lot of different conference rooms, eating a lot of bad takeout food, making a lot of really, really hard decisions. <laughs> I, I think it's also fair to say, given um, Ryan and Ted's interaction, that some people um, don't mind reading on these backlit LCD screens, yeah. and other people do. I think there's context there, lengths of time, um, stealing some time to read a book. Uh, on my iPhone is it doesn't bother me, but I do also see the I have a Kindle too, and it you know it is a lot easier. It is more like reading paper um, in a well-lit place. It's a great great reading experience, and I do think that there's room for both. With the caveat that the you know the Kindle is a unitasker. It is for reading books, and it's good at it. And it, it's not for browsing the web and checking Twitter. And although Kindle now Amazon's going to have this API for apps on the Kindle, it's like please no, <laughs> don't do it. It, it, it. Its strength is that it is good at reading books, and well, that sort of you, it falls away, and all you're doing is turning the page. I wonder how I think much you'll feel that way once you have an iPad and you realize that you have to now carry around two devices, an iPad and a Kindle. Uh, for what you want to do. Well, I, I don't know if you'll have to carry yeah, well, one two devices. I still carry an iPhone and an iPod just because the iPod is much nicer for listening to music in some scenarios. But then again, I'm really strange. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to take, with our with our last 10 minutes or so, I want to talk a little bit about the future. I want you to put on your, um, your prognosticating hat, except for Andy, who's already wearing it. And talk about where, what, the, what impact the iPad has uh, and will have in the next, let's say, five years. Um, and you can bring in other, other tablet devices, too. Microsoft tried a long time ago to say that tablet devices were the future, and it, they were a flop, largely. Um, are people ready for a device like this? Um, whether it's the iPad or it's a tablet that runs on Chrome OS or something else, in five years, are we going to really see a significant percentage of people doing things on a, on a pad, on a tablet, that right now we think is something you can only do on a computer? I think what's really going to be interesting is watching how the younger people pick this up because I feel like there's a, you know, we've still got a generation of people who still learn the computer with the mouse and the keyboard, but when this becomes an option and you see kids starting to, I mean, it's, if you've ever tried to teach somebody to use a traditional computer with the mouse, um, there's a reason that Apple stuck to that one button mouse for so long because it was simple because they didn't have to ask, stop and ask yourself a question. Do I right click? Do I left click? I just click. And that may sound fairly insignificant to us because we're all very used to this for doing it for 25 years. But if you sit down with someone who, who really, you know, is using a computer for the first time, then you realize the challenge is not just, well, do I right click or do I left click? But it's the whole thing with trying to get them to, you know, realize that, okay, I have to move this little thing and it moves something on the screen. That's a huge disconnect. That's actually a really big deal. And especially when you're talking about kids, for example, who are in younger developmental stages, there's a kind of disconnect there that, that's very hard to overcome. And I think I've listened to a lot of uh, friends and colleagues who have young kids and they talk about uh, how they, they've showed, you know, give the kids the iPhone or something. And the kids take right to it because, you know, they see something and their initial reaction is to touch it, which is why you don't take them to museums. So they, they reach out and they touch, you know, an icon and, it, and something happens and they can easily see the connection between them touching something and, and the result. So I think that when you start seeing kids who begin to grow up with these tablet computers, with these touchscreen interfaces, they're going to wonder what the hell's wrong with us for using these keyboards and mice. It's going to look archaic to yeah. them. So, I mean, maybe not five years out, but when you start talking five, 10, 15 years out, I think this is going to be a whole new paradigm in the way that we do computing, um, just in the same way that 
the people who are raised on the first graphical user interfaces look back and kind of giggle at the people who were using DOS and Unix and typing these really weird commands in. See, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, I feel like your hands, the human body needs feedback, it needs tactility. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think makes you able to type at 150 words per minute is you can feel the keys and you know where Absolutely. your fingers are, right? So I mean, there's travel that has to occur. And, and I, mean, I think that's part of the reason why Apple released a keyboard dock. You know, they recognize that you can't actually do everything. You can't be fully productive on a primarily touchscreen keyboard. And technology may change and there may be some crazy, you know, uh, crazy screens, yeah, that yeah. have haptics and stuff like that. But we're not there now. So, you know, it's going to be a little while, and, and I don't know, I don't know if I, I mean, I'm skeptical that I see a tablet device actually taking the place of a computer. Uh, I think it's, it, it is in between, and, and, and Steve was smart to kind of acknowledge the fact that it was an in-between device, and that they were going to have to build this market, basically, from the ground up. Do you um, think, though, that there's a class of, of laptop that, I think that maybe, I, I'd be interested in what you have to say, um, is there a class of laptop that people have that they really only use, they use so little of the feature set, but the only way they can do email or the only way they can surf the web is on a computer, so they buy a laptop. My mom is like this. Um, that, that might be a, a class where this device um, sort of slides in and, and, and replaces yeah, Not absolutely. all computers, but I mean, some computers. Yeah, there's no coincidence why Steve kept bringing up netbooks, right? I mean, it, it, I think it's, it's a class of device that is in that same price range and that is completely ripe to be assassinated by this product. Uh, I mean, this, this does the things that netbooks do really, really well, except for the fact that it doesn't have a keyboard built in. Uh, so I think that in that sense, you know, the kind of around-the-house computers, the stuff that you might just pick up and use for a few minutes and put back down, it's going to be great. I can't wait to use it sitting on the sofa. But it's still on the sofa. It's not going to take the place, I think, of when I need to be productive or when I need to go on the road with something. Uh, I think it's going to be in, in, in addition to, but not a replacement for. I, I agree. Uh, and I, I think, yes, the around-the-house computer, exactly as you're saying, is, I think, going to be the primary use uh, or the portable computer instead of, uh, instead of a laptop in certain cases, like when you're in a coffee shop or whatever. Uh, I, think, I think that's exactly true. I also, I'm also more optimistic about the long-term uses of it as a computer. Uh, I, think, uh, I think it isn't there today, and so maybe it's hard to imagine that it's going to be uh, in three or four or five years substantially different. But I think that, there are, that the majority of people that use a computer today don't really utilize it in a way that takes advantage of all the things that it can do that that an that a iPad cannot do and probably won't be doing in the next few years. And I think still that those, that those users, that there will be a way that the iPad will be able to satisfy those users. I think there's also another issue where, I, another area where the iPad will excel that we haven't seen much yet. Uh, you know, use your iPhone as a remote control to control Apple TV. Um, or, or, uh, or as an iTunes uh, library controller. I think it's likely, especially in terms of around the house sort of thing, that you'll see more of that in the future. That the iPad uh, in a more digital home coming in the next, you know, whatever number of years, that the iPad could become a sort of focal remote control that will allow you to do all sorts of things around your house. You see some companies marketing remote controls that do that sort of thing already. I think the iPad will be a natural for that, where, you know, you go into one room, you can turn on your stereo with the iPad, another room control the lights with the iPad, control your thermostat from the iPad, uh, almost like the general magic idea from years ago. I think the iPad, the iPad could really come in in that direction. And the, the other thing that I would add is that I think ultimately, uh, and pleading ignorance here, I think ultimately we're going to be surprised at what the iPad can do because a lot of it is going to come from what third-party developers think of that we don't even know yet. That, that's a big difference between the launch of the iPhone and the iPad is that the apps are front and center when they talk about the iPad 
and uh, we had to wait a year with um, no third-party apps on the iPhone. So that, that's going to be a difference in how the iPad launches. Andy, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think okay, on the subject of Microsoft's history with tablets, I mean, what comes to mind is a famous quote about socialism that I don't, I don't believe that tablets have been tried and failed. I'm, I believe that they've never been tried. Uh, every time I've had a, a Microsoft tablet, going back from the first release a number of years ago, all the way to the latest ones I've seen as of last week that haven't been released yet, I don't see a tablet computer. I see a desktop computer for which your finger takes the place of a mouse. This is not a mouse. This is a finger. And the first time you're going to get a tablet computer that actually works is when it's designed from the ground up to be touched, to be manipulated uh, with, with these things right here and not something that you're actually holding in your hand. Uh, I think the iPad is going to have two really big successes and big reaches. Number one, just for the device as it is the actual iPad developed by Apple. Even so, I don't think it's going to be a big hit until 2011. Uh, I think it's going to take a year after people like us and most of the people in this room have been buying them and using them in the field when the normal civilian is now in 2011, they've got five or 600 bucks to buy what they think is going to be a $600 Windows 7 machine. But then they think back to that flight they took lasted four hours and the person next to them had an iPad and was using it throughout the entire flight to do all kinds of cool things. Every time they're in a conference room where someone was taking notes on an iPad, it'll give that kind of credibility that'll make them think, you know what, let's duck into the Apple store just to see what this can do. And then there'll be a year's worth of applications behind it that will convince them that maybe I don't want a $600 notebook, maybe I want a $500 iPad. But it's also going to have a really big halo effect that we're already starting to see. Uh, uh, Star Wars was not the first science fiction movie to make a lot of money, but it was the first one to remind Hollywood that the fact that there has been a 20-year history of science fiction movies failing at the box office was not a failure of the product itself. It was a failure of bad products. And because Star Wars was a mega hit, that allowed everybody who had a really great idea for a science fiction movie or science fiction TV series to say, here's my idea. Nope, well, remember Star Wars. That made a billion dollars in about 10 seconds, plus there's the licensing, plus the toys. Uh, tablet uh, every single, uh, in CES last month, how many different tablet devices did we see based on Android? Uh, all of whom were, I'm sure, again, another one of those scramble back to the conference room for more long and, and weary uh, uh, meetings, because I'm sure everybody was thinking, well, we're, the way we're going to beat Apple with the tablet games is that we're going to sell ours for $500. They can't touch that. Uh, but it's going to lend credibility to the idea of computing via tablet. I don't think that the Android tablets are going to be quite there immediately. I think they also are going to need about a year to figure out how to make uh, just like it took about a year for Android phones to stop being, stop looking like a cheap open source version of the iPhone and start to be their own really wonderful, really useful, and absolutely credible competitors to everything else going there. It's going to take a year to get there, but the iPad is going to create that kind of credibility that will let these proposals go forward and finally break us free from this type on this, look at this paradigm that we're absolutely been stuck with for the past 30 years. I'm, um, I know, uh, School, school teacher in Scotland uh, named Fraser Spears, who is a Mac developer. And um, he immediately after the iPad was announced said, do you realize how amazing this product will be in education, where there are lots of laptops that get bought cheap laptops and they get beat up by the kids, and it's overkill for a lot of what the kids need to do. And I think that's another place where you might see a, a real change is in, is in the education market. Now, we're almost out of time. I have one last question. I want to go around the horn really quickly. So this is this is your quick answer portion of the proceedings, and you will be graded accordingly. <laughs> the lightning round. The, it the is lightning the lightning round. round. Thank you. Which is, what is your biggest unanswered question about the iPad that you, that you can't wait until you get your hands on it? What's the unanswered question about the iPad? So, what do you want to know? 
What's the mystery? Do we know everything about it? Come on. <laughs> what? I don't have a single big unanswered question, so that's why it's hard to come up with. But certainly, uh, I'd be interested to see. Um, well, two things, I guess. Uh, one is, is, are they going to come out with? A, they're going to come out with an iPhone OS 4.0 uh, this summer, presumably for the iPhone. I imagine that's going to integrate uh, with the iPad as well. That this 3.2 version that's coming out now is iPad only. Uh, and, and so the, my, the big question for me is, what are they going to have an iPhone 4.0 that's going to be specific for the iPad that they haven't said yet? Is there going to be some form of multitasking or at least a way to switch back and forth be between, nice. between applications? Uh, you know, what, what hidden features are they, are they holding back for the 4.0? That would be, my, I guess, my biggest question. And, and the second one I'll just throw in there is I'm interested in what, what options will be available for printing. So, uh, uh, for printing, yeah. yes. The great unknown, mm -hmm. printing on the iPad. Can I use it as a phone? Yeah. <laughs> or a camera. Is that is that your, I don't know. your uh, lightning round question? Well, uh, that's, I mean, that's a good I think, one. I think, I think Ted has a good point. And uh, I, mean, I looked at, and we've talked about this in the past, but we looked at this screen when we, when we got there and we thought, it looks kind of empty, right? A little sparse. It's a big, big gap. Big gap with yeah. the small iPhone icons. It seems something about that to me seems a little weird, um, especially since, and I've tested, um, I asked one of the people, the handler, standing there. How many, how many apps can I put in the dock down there? And she said, I don't know. So I just started dragging things in until it made me stop. It's about six, which is a little weird because then it's all sort of staggered and uneven. So I'm kind of thinking, again, with the, the possibility for iPhone 4.0 like, lurking on the horizon, are we going to see some sort of new design for this home screen that takes better advantage of the fact that this isn't? Because you look at it and you think, well, it's a big iPhone or iPod Touch because it looks like it. But is there going to be something that really distinguishes this and, and makes it look different in a way that is really appropriate for this product and not just viewing it as a larger iPhone. Right. Yeah, this kind, home screen makes it, it look like a, one of those giant checks that they give to lottery winners. <laughs> it's just like it's, it's, a, it's a check, but it's huge, and, and, and there is more that could be done with this. Space. It kind of reminds me of the, the, iPhone, the original iPhone, the first-gen iPhone when it came out, where it felt like it was so empty. Right, I was like, where are the rest of the icons? You know, I, oh, I now think, you have 140,000. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, so, yeah, hopefully they'll figure out a way to kind of fill this up and, you know, put some, you know, live widgets on there. Something to kind of, you know, get a little bit more Maybe they'll data even give us folders so you can Yeah, one of the things them. that Android does, I think, really well is the ability to put those Yeah, the ability you can screen. embed, basically, applications directly into, into you know, your home screens or just data, you know, live weather, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Uh, I, I think multitasking, I think, is going to be the big question. Uh, the Apple knows they have to do it. Uh, you know, it's a lot like apps during the, the the first iPhone launch. Everybody was asking where the apps were, and Apple was very silent about it. And we I think we all knew that they knew that they had to do something about it, and they did. So I think multitasking is it's it's got to happen eventually. And so we'll just have to wait and see when when it does. I think that's kind of the biggest question, especially for a device like this, where you actually really want to dig in with some stuff. Andy, if I have to choose just one that has not been already covered, uh, it would have to be the question of how easy will it be for me to get, or, I'm sorry, for anybody to get content into the iBook store. If it is as easy as releasing an app, which certainly has its pitfalls, but if I really, if I write an app, I have a very, I could be very, very confident that unless it violates some very, very well published rules, it'll, it'll definitely get in. That'll be one thing. If it's as hard as getting a song into the iTunes store, where by its very nature, if I'm not affiliated with a larger company that already has existing uh, links into Apple to, know, to ease that process, I know that I ain't getting in there. That'll turn into a completely different thing. If Apple manages to get one bookstore so that even all the people who are doing comic book apps, even all the people who are doing specific book apps, decide that we, we can repurpose our content so that it can be published through, through iBook, if there is this one icon I tap to find every piece of readable material that I could possibly want, then the iPad clears the table and wins. 
if it becomes really difficult, and I know that it's just a few freak, well-moneyed publishers who can get into the iBookstore, then it's, they're on the same level as every other tablet device, and there are going to be plenty this time next year. All right. I want to thank my guests, and I hope you do too, Dan Morin, Ted Landau, Ryan Block, and Andy Anato. And I want to thank everybody here because um, it's, it's all the people like you who come to Macworld Expo who make this a great event uh, last year, this year, and next year, too. Thanks a lot for coming. We, we, don't, we don't have Q&A, but we're going to be up here uh, if you'd like to come up and talk to us about it. So thank you very much. And uh, somebody catch. Funk Soul Brother, check it out now. The Funk Soul 